Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Greetings, artists and art lovers. Welcome to Not Real Art, series favorite creative culture podcast. I'm your host, Sourdough, and today I'm joined by a writer and meditation advocate, David Gherkin. Welcome, David. Good to be here, Sourdough. How are you today, sir? I'm lovely. Thank you. You seem, you seem very relaxed. Is this the benefits of meditation? Yes, it is. It's almost seven years of regular meditation, and it makes me sound like I've been, you know, smoking ganja, but I haven't. I'm just very relaxed. You can always do that. It's legal now. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) So good to be here. Good. Well, good. I, I I was hoping that you'd give my chair a little credit for your comfort because, you know, that's a pretty comfortable chair sitting in. For all of you people out there who obviously can't see this, it's Sourdough has very comfortable chairs for his guests. So, well, you know, we do I what we can. This highly. We do what we can. You know, we want to make things as hospitable as possible. Well, good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, it's great having you here. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. You and I go back for the sake of our, our listeners. You and I go back as friends for a while now. And, you know, I think when we first met, I would say you were uh, you were a bit of a hothead. You were a little stressed. You were you know you were in the throes of Hollywood drama as a writer, as a as a you know, Emmy award winning writer. Quite frankly, am I wrong about that? You you won a little. Well, I was along the part way, of the writing staff that won the best drama series on the West Wing for the o two o three season. So sure, why not? Good, Emmys okay. gave me a nice little. Certificate. And that didn't fulfill your ever need. I mean, like you were, you were, you weren't just blissfully happy and, you know, feel, it seems like, you know, you'd have no reason to be stressed out. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have been so stressed out had it not been for the fact that after winning that Emmy, I got fired. So there's that. Oh, hey. <laughs> just yeah. like all, anybody worth his or her salt in Hollywood, I got fired. Isn't that like, isn't that life though, right? Just when you think, oh good, I made it. I've broken through. This is my big shot. I finally did it. And then wham, curveball. Yeah. Yeah. That nowhere is that more true than in Hollywood where essentially the, the bottom line on Hollywood is, as I always tell people is whether you're into acting, directing, writing, producing, there's always a few jobs for many squillions of people looking to fill those. Mm. It's just, that's just the bottom line on the whole thing. But I don't regret at all. You know, the, the, the quick backup on this is I spent the first 15 years after college in Washington, D.C., working as a legislative assistant mm. and then as a lobbyist. And I enjoyed that a Were lot. Were you part of the swamp that our president's trying to drain? You know, I wouldn't say so. You know, I wasn't part of the you know, working for the cigarette companies or the gun companies or anything like that. And I was doing some pretty tame stuff. But anyway, it was, you know, just fulfilling sort of my creative, I don't know, drive to go get out of there and head to LA. And the fact is, it was tough for many of those years in LA in the writing business, but I don't regret doing it. I really... 
And and one interesting thing that people don't really sort of understand when I say this is, you know, I'm a guy who went from Washington where supposedly you are setting policy and you're you're determining, you know, uh, all the laws of our country and how people live. It's important, heady, good stuff. And I went to L.A. where you're, you know, <laughs> the land of soap operas and, you know, mostly bad TV shows and films and stuff. However, I saw the writing business and, and what I was doing as definitely a jump up in sort of the soulfulness of what I was doing versus DC. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the few. I thought it was really just cool stuff, especially working on the West Wing where you're you know, actually dealing with those real, those real world things in a creative way was just fantastic. I loved it. What I find interesting about your journey is that clearly on one, you know, a big part of your being is my words, maybe not yours, but I mean, clearly you have an activist mindset in terms of wanting to try to, you know, impact our democracy, wanting to try to, you know, be in the trenches, you know, making our country a better place, which, you know, doesn't necessarily seem like a creative job, a creative profession. And yet you also clearly have this other part of your being that is very creative, very artistic. And it's interesting that you got to a point where you felt like you had to invest in your, in your artistic self and therefore you move to LA and then you have this really interesting opportunity to sort of combine those worlds. Right. So it's like, it's not like you went to go work on star Trek. You went to go work on West wing. And so it was an interesting bridge. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the very specific way that that those bridges were joined because what I tried to do is obviously marry my knowledge of Washington from many years working there with my creative side, which I had learned a bit of as I was on that show. And what is the most important thing normally in any creative endeavor, especially writing, is in any screenplay, movie, TV play, you want to put your character through the most brutal conflict within themselves that you possibly can. People don't maybe realize that, but when they are really into something, often that is why they are, because someone is really struggling, Mm. a character that you really feel for. Sure, right. And you go through that journey with them. So what I did was I thought to myself, okay, what, what could be the most brutal thing that a president of the United States would have to go through? And I just thought, well, obviously, one of them would be, if not the biggest, is sending people to war. And knowing that you are going to create some incredible tragedy in some family, families, the wife, the mother and the father, and that's got to be hard. And then it came down to, but you know what, if most of the time that stuff is fairly, you know, the Iraq war notwithstanding, most of that stuff is not that hard a decision because you kind of have to do it in this country, World War II, whatever. So... I thought, well, what if there had just been a Rwanda genocide in 1994 and Bill Clinton did not go in there and he he says it's the biggest regret he ever had as president, that he didn't go in and try and stop it when he kind of knew that it was about to happen or in the first days when it was happening. So I created, we had a fictional country there in this show called Kundu 
which I just substituted for Rwanda. And I made it that Bartlett, the President Bartlett, had got wind that there was about to be a massive fight, war, massacre of the, I made up the names, it's in real life, it's the Tutsis and the Hutus. And his big conflict was that we don't have any interest there. There's no oil. There's no nothing. There's no geopolitical strategy. It's not next to Russia. It's not anything. So it's all about just saving innocent lives. And, and then it all came down to this story of him going to the Pentagon and saying, well, how many lives would we probably lose? It's called a casualty assessment report. And he got the report back. It was something on the order of 160 people. So then it became this, it's almost a mathematical game of, oh, how many innocent African lives are worth one American soldier's life? Is it a hundred? Is it a thousand? And it really just, and Aaron Sorkin, our boss, loved it. And he did four episodes on it. And so anyway, that was just using sort of both sides and coming up with something. And that was actually two of those four episodes were submitted with our Emmy package of six. You send in six episodes Mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. Emmy committee Mm -hmm. and two of out of six out of, you know, a 24 episode season. So I was pretty happy. What I've always appreciated about you getting to know you over the years is that you are truly a multidimensional human being, right? You have, Clearly, you have your artistic side as a writer. You have your, dare I say, lawmaker side as a lobbyist and a you know, person that worked on the Hill and in D.C., et cetera, in the trenches of our democracy. But you're also an incredible athlete as well. I mean, you played tennis at a high level. You played tennis in college. Did you not? I did. I played at Princeton for four years and loved it. It was, you know, the best thing about it, frankly, was that in high school and growing up, tennis was not the sexy sport. It was the football well, those players. shorts, man. I mean, those short, those shorts no, of the seventies, they no, were not sexy. No, it was the football players that got all the girls. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, oh my God, no girls liking me because of tennis. Even though our high school team in Corona del Mar was one of the best in the country, but still they love the football players. Well, I get to Princeton and it's all these preppy girls and they're like, ooh, tennis. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally I'm going to get some respect. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Right, right. Yeah. And by the way, it totally translated to DC where there were just a ton of tennis fanatics with very powerful tennis fanatics. George Mitchell, who I interned for, and then he became the Senate majority leader. He was arguably like the second or third most powerful person in America. Mm-hmm. And this guy's I remember him, calling yeah. me up and saying, who are we playing doubles with this weekend? Yeah. You know, and yeah. they just, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, John Kerry, the guy who became secretary of state and you know he and i would go out and have dinner and after we'd play and just chat about stuff i'm like 23 24 years old it was really fun absolutely yeah so you have reinvented yourself a few different times in your life it's and here you are again reinventing yourself mm-hmm. as an advocate for meditation and you know what i was about to say earlier is having known you now for several years as your friend seeing you you know, unwind, relax, you know, on one path while also, you know, and that's of course just about quality of life, right? I mean, that's about being a better father, better husband, better human being, but then to also say, you know what, this is so effective that you want to share it. And so you wrote a book. I did. 
And so this, you know, dare I say David Gherkin, a 4.0 <laughs> version is now as author and advocate for meditation. I don't know if that's quite the right phraseology you want to use, you know, meditation advocate, because clearly you're a writer and author, but you are focusing on meditation. Yeah. Well, and I'll be even more specific. I am an advocate for meditation, but what happened was I got into this, you know, I was... God, I was, I think, around 48 at the time, and I, it's like six years ago, six and a half years ago, I've, my house is underwater with the mortgage crisis. I cannot find a job in writing to save myself. I mean, to, I couldn't get arrested, as they say in Hollywood. And I've got two kids under the age of four. And I'm like, what in the hell am I doing? I mean, it was a tough time. And and my sister had been in meditation. And so I tried it. But I finally said, I got to just give this a shot and see maybe this will help me. And I made a big plan for 2013. I just said, I'm going for it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give it the whole year. And any long story short is it, it happened. I made it happen and it worked. And off I went. But the point is, I, I really got into it and I got into sort of the world, so to speak, of going to meditation conferences and mindfulness conferences, one in D.C. and in Huntington Beach and getting to know all the sort of what I call the spiritual elite, like Eckhart Tolle right. and Joseph Goldstein and Tara Brock. I mean, there's a long, long list. Mickey Singer. And I'm one of these people, I, I'm not that brilliant. I'm really not. But one thing I'm really good at is getting to what is obvious. As my brother Chip, <laughs> as what my brother Chip, my oldest brother, used yeah. to always say to me yeah. when I was a kid, he'd go, Dave, you have an incredible command of the obvious. And he's right. <laughs> and so what seemed so obvious to me, just screaming out yeah. in, in, in surveying the whole landscape of this world was that all this stuff is out there about meditation. You know, you, you can't, the New York Times has like a, a section devoted to it now online. Right. It feels like I'm seeing a, a, every week a new app for there's meditation. There's a new app, there's yeah. Headspace. Yeah. There's meditation dens opening up all over the place where you pop in and you meditate for half One an hour. One just opened up around the block from my house. Around the block from your house. I mean, they're all over the place. So yeah. bottom line is there's this huge push and it's in the zeitgeist so to speak and yet that's so that's fact number one fact number two though is that nobody's doing it nobody is actually not nobody hardly anybody is meditating regularly which means are you doing even like 10 or 15 minutes a day and it doesn't have to be like every day let's say even five days a week and I don't have, you know, stats on that, but I, because I don't think anyone has done any kind of a poll, but I got to think that it's less than 1% of people in this country are meditating regularly. And the science has shown that to get the great benefits of it, you got to do it regularly. So that became my thing. That is my thing right now. It's not, you had said, so you're a meditation advocate. If I had to be more specific, I'd say I'm a regular meditation advocate. I'm trying to get people to develop a practice. And right. frankly, it's not that hard. I mean, it isn't. And that's what my book is about is how to do it, which I'll be coming out with in a few months. 
but it's not that hard. And that's my whole mantra on this is I just want to spread this stuff to a greater swath of the population because it is just profoundly beneficial in just so many ways, you know, some of which are very pragmatic, like it can help with depression. It definitely can help with anxiety, which most people have like probably some level of anxiety, which I would describe as just that little feeling in your stomach or in your, just your gut, your being that you just don't feel like everything is quite right. You know, that's kind of almost always there. It doesn't mean it's killing you or anything, but it helps with that. It helps just sort of take away a lot of the just anxiety of life and just make you feel more peace inside. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's not much I can think of that is more important than that. Because what it ends up doing is it bleeds into the rest of your life, where when you start doing this and you start feeling more peace, you're going to become a better husband, a better wife. You're going to be a better dad, a better mom. You're going to be a better brother. You're going to be a better friend. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about how meditation can help artists be better artists. Right. Because, you know, in I was on your website, davidgerkin.net, which is excellent, by the way. I don't know who helped you with that, but, Thank um, you, very you much. know, you, uh, you definitely uh, have a nice site there, 1.0, but you have some great articles on there. And on one of the articles you're talking about sort of the ego versus the conscious self, right? yep. if, I, mm-hmm. if I'm getting you, those words you right. got it right. And as an artist myself, having, you know, many, many artist friends, I can tell you that we are cursed with sort of negative narrative, you know, internal dialogue, just beating, (laughs) beating up ourselves about not being good enough, not being successful enough, you know, not, you know, being wherever we think we should be at this point in our careers and, you know, a lot of uh, self-loathing. Yeah. Well, well, those are kind of two different points. One is how can it actually help you as an artist? And on that point, I think it's pretty self-evident how meditation would help an artist with his or her actual work and quality. And that has to do with the fact, and I think it is a fact, that most great art, and I don't care whether it's painting, writing, sculpting, dancing, I don't care what it is, comes from a place of no thought. Mm. You're not sitting there going, hmm, you know, some Picasso, I don't think was sitting there going, God, that I want this like He just was going. I always go back to Bob Dylan, who I've just read a lot about. And, you know, in the early 60s period where he's right blowing in the wind and like a rolling stone and all that stuff, he would say that he just wasn't even there. You know, when he was writing those songs, he said, I don't know. It was like I was just sort of transcribing i wasn't thinking it just sort of came it was a kind of a vessel yeah and that's what you want to do and that's what and let's face it even if you meditate 15 hours a day it's not that you are going to then sit down at your next creative project and just bang out a masterpiece because that stuff even if your mind is still it is sort of subtle and it comes when it comes my point is that it will come a lot more more readily and be much more that genius that we all have will be much more available to you the quieter your mind gets 
bottom line. I mean, I don't think anyone could argue with that when your mind is chattering all the time and yeah. I suck. Oh my God. What am I going to be able to pay my bills? Oh God. Ah, my girlfriend's going to break up with me. Ah, you think you're going to create anything good out of that? I don't think so. And I will tell you, my meditation has really helped my writing because it th- there is the creative aspect of it that I do think it just helps you, as I said, access that genius. We do, some people call it God. I don't whatever you want to call it, the universe that is working through you onto the canvas or or your computer screen if you're writing a play, whatever. But it also helps in a very pragmatic way. I found with my writing, which is. Let's face it, a lot of creative work, especially writing, comes down to, God, can I just get my butt in the chair and just start writing? Or am I going to be on the internet for the next two and a half hours reading ESPN.com before I get going because I just can't get myself there? Well, then there are scientific studies that show that meditation actually scientifically helps you with focus. It helps you focus better. And what that means is if you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to just write this article, it just doesn't take me as long to just get going and just get started and just go. My focus just goes, which is huge. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a word that keeps popping into my mind as, as I'm listening to you talk and that word is flow. And, you know, I think that that's, there have been a few times in my life where I feel like I have achieved flow. And whether it was, you know, by accident or intentional or the conditions were just right that it happened and I recognized it. And I think that those are miraculous moments, right? Where you're able to feel that that sense of flow. And and it sounds like that's what you're getting at. You're getting at that a consistent practice of meditation done faithfully over time will help one begin to create the conditions more regularly that will allow them to achieve, you know, flow in their work, whatever it happens to be. That's it. You just said it in probably a more articulate way than I just said it because I flow is a great word for it. Whether you're, I'm sure it's true for painters. I know it's true for writers when they're in the flow and it's just happening, but yeah, it's just making it easier for you to access that genius. And again, you can't just sort of call on it because the moment you say genius let's go we got to get working now it flies away you know when i was on your website davidgerkin.net i when i was reading your articles again i I forget which article it was but i was reading and you know the thought came to me and i guess this was about the conscious self but it's but i wondered to what extent when we are kids when we are children you know we have that conscious intuition very naturally. And then as we grow older, you know, with responsibility and stress of life and just as, you know, and the ego comes into play, like is what you're advocating for uh, almost this idea that we're, we, we need to try to aspire to get back to that young beginner's mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean that, that is when they talk about enlightened beings whether if you're a Buddhist, you would believe that the Buddha achieved that. I'm a big advocate and follower of Eckhart Tolle. He's probably the closest I have seen to someone who is enlightened. And all most people really mean by that is it's just people who don't think a whole lot randomly. 
they think when they want to think. You know, they if they, they are want, present in the moment, they're just present in the moment. As Eckhart Tolle says, all I really am is just a conscious presence. There's really not a lot of Eckhart Tolle there. All he is, and we all have that. We're all essentially, as you read in my article about, you know, that's sort of the two selves. The conscious self is that genius part of you that is also the part of you that is just in the moment and is here. You know, right now I'm looking at you. I see your feet, your, I see your room here, I see the paintings on the wall. That is happening right now, and my conscious self is in control. The minute I start looking out the window as you're asking me a question or something, and I think about, you know, God, what time is my kid's soccer game this afternoon? That is, some people call it the egoic self. It's just, it's the chattering mind that we all have that is involuntary. It's not like I say to myself, hey, let's think about that. It just happens. And it's a pandemic. Oh, it is like it's 99% of people across the globe. And that's why it's almost difficult to get this message to people because it's like, well, yeah, of course I do that. Doesn't everybody? And the fact is, yes, everybody does do this. So essentially what we are is almost everyone on this planet are in, you know, insane people in an insane asylum. And the good news is it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, you can, you know, you're probably, I'm not going to probably reach the level that Eckhart Tolle did where I'm not chattering at all in my mind ever. That's pretty tough to attain. But what is attainable is to, if you're chattering 99.9% of the time, And getting that down to even, let's say, 60% of the time from years of work on your meditation and, and just sort of focusing on that, that is an enormous improvement in the quality of your life. And it's not just the quality of your life. It's the quality of life all around you. 100%. Your family benefits, your coworkers benefit, everybody benefits when you are just a little bit more present because you become more compassionate. You're just a, a better, as I call it in the things I write, you just become a better human being. Yeah. Well, and I think also it's a quality of life play as well. I mean, I, I'm not a regular practitioner of meditation at all. Not yet. Not yet. But I have meditated and I can speak from personal experience that one of the interesting, powerful takeaways or insights I got from those times I, I was meditating is that it really has this effect of slowing time down. Right. I mean, I, I know for myself, like I'm 48, right? So I, I look up and I'm like, where the hell did the time go? You know, 48 years, like it feels like 48 minutes. Right. Right. And, you know, and so in people talk about how time as you get older and there are scientific reasons for this as well, apparently, but time speeds up. You feel, you know, like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're moving quickly through time and space. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to slow that down? Wouldn't it be nice to feel like, you know what? I'm in the moment. Time is moving as it is, but, you know, it, it feels right. You know, it doesn't feel too fast. It doesn't feel too slow. Anyway, I just, you know, always enjoyed that about meditation is, is that it, it brought me into the moment. It slowed time down and it caused me to almost feel young again because it had that, it brought me back to that mindset I had when I was a kid, when I didn't have to worry about the future, I didn't have to worry about the past. All I had to worry about was riding my bike. Yep. That's all you were doing. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then we grow up and, and it's natural, you know, and there's reasons that this happens. The brain, I'll do a very quick sort of tutorial on this, but the human brain is, you know, the homo sapien brain. Basically we've been around for roughly a hundred thousand to 200,000 years. They're not exactly sure, but the brain that we had in those first thousands of years in its development is not that different than the brains we have now because it takes a long time for evolution to sort of change these things. And so what happened was for all those hundred thousands and more years of evolution, what were we doing? We were as humans, we were hunting and gathering. We were walking around in the woods in a band of roughly 50 people and we were killing animals to eat and we were picking berries and we were living in nature and boy, we were not sitting around worried about what our boss was going to tell us at the three o'clock meeting. He just called earlier in the day. We were in the moment pretty much. And so what happened was then the quick end of this is that, you know, roughly, I don't know, seven, 8,000 years ago, they'd figure out a way to create agriculture and grow cattle and sheep and stuff like that. So we all stayed in one place. We stopped doing that. And for all those thousands of years since humans have gotten just a little bit crazier as a result, because we're staying in one place where that, that would create a huge population growth. It just created. And then you even look at the last hundred years and now you got a phone, you can call people, you can fly in a plane somewhere. And then you got the iPhone 10, 12 years ago, whatever the internet 25 years ago. And it's all just got us just a little bit crazy now our brains i mean i'm talking specifically about our brains and dealing with it and one of the byproducts is the chattering mind yeah well it, it's fascinating too because you have to wonder how the development of our economy has driven you know is a core driver of what you're talking about right because when you we're living in a barter economy or we're living in a in a self-reliant world where we're killing what we eat or we're raising what we eat and it's just up to us to take care of our family and our tribe. And then yet suddenly there's a job in the city where you can make more money. And there's this migration of people to cities to make money in a more capitalistic pursuit, right? You know, your values change, your priorities change, right? And you know, I it, it, when I think about things fundamentally or systemically as to why people are stressed out, why we don't meditate, I mean, on a certain level, it boils down to how we organize ourselves, how we organize our time, prioritize our, our time, our value system. And it feels like we're living in a time now where we don't value humanity in the way that I think what you're getting at. Yeah. Well, I, I get what you're saying. And I think maybe this is a corollary to it is we're so busy now and and people kind of wonder like why what is so hard about meditation and the hard part about meditation at least getting started is not so much the following your breath in and out and doing the actual meditation i think the hardest part for most people is just stopping and sitting your butt in a chair 
and closing your eyes and then doing that. It's just, I know it's true for me. I'm almost seven years in. Sometimes that is just the hardest part. I'm working on something. Okay, well, I'm going to meditate now. And it's just that thing about stopping and just, you know, our brains don't want to stop. They, they're so addicted to go, 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 especially in America. Maybe the French are a little different. You know, they're a little more relaxed and willing to enjoy life a bit more. But that's that's the biggest problem is just our chattering brains. And they, they just don't want to stop. And, and it's a battle, you know. But it's a battle so worth waging. Yeah. And it's uh, the hardest part is just in the beginning. Right. Because like anything else, this is what my book is all about and my my ebook I've got on my website, which also describes how to do this, is it's all about just getting those first weeks in, you know, and maybe just even like eight weeks. Once you do that, it's going to become like a, a lot of things, you know, like working out. And maybe when you hadn't worked out in a long time or ever, it was tough getting your butt out the door with your running shoes on or whatever you were doing. But then once you got going and you felt good with it, it probably felt bad and weird for you not to do it. That's right. what habits are. All you're, all I'm trying to do is help people develop a habit and then they're off to the races. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I appreciate your rigorous focus on the uh, a simplistic approach to getting started, you know, in terms of, you know, baby steps, right? You know, to stopping, you know, prioritizing two minutes a day, just, and, and so this is a very practical approach, which I, you know, very much appreciate, you know, however, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of artists. I know I'm thinking about a lot of listeners out there, right. Who, you know, I know they're saying, you know, thinking to themselves, yeah, but I'm just trying to pay my bills. Yeah. But you know, you're talking about self-actualization and I'm here just trying to put food on my fucking table, you know? And so what say you to folks who are struggling with basic needs? I mean, they're just trying to pay the bills and put food on the table. And here you are telling them to, you know, stop, sit down and meditate. And for a person like that, you know, that, that feels like a luxury they can't afford, I'm guessing, right? Because they're wow. just in it. You well, know? one thing I would say is on a couple levels here. One is as far as time, it is, you know, relatively minuscule. I'm not, I am not advocating that people spend an hour a day, two hours a day meditating. I'm not even advocating they spend 30 minutes a day meditating or even 20. If they can do like, and again, you work up to this. I would never start someone doing 15 minutes of meditation. How much time a day are you meditating now? Take us through your day. I do it in the morning. I have a little bit easier than most because I don't have to get up and be in the car so I can get to the office by eight or nine or whatever. Right. But I do it probably roughly at about nine each morning after I've done some things beforehand. Get the kids off to school. Get the what kids have off you. to school, right. get them breakfast, do all that kind of thing. But anyway, it is the time part is doable. And as far as, okay, well, look, these people, you know, I've just, I've got bills. I mean, how is this going to help me? Well, for many people, it will be the most important thing they do in their entire life. And, the, and I know that sounds pretty, you know, grandiose, but here's why. 
most people, oh, I've got to pay my bills. I've got to do this. I got to do that. Most people are either living in, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done this in my past, or even more so they're living in, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this? They're worrying about their future. Okay. That's what most of that sort of chatter is that's going on in your head. I know for me, it's that it still is it, it's to some degree. How am I going to do this and that? What meditation is trying to do is, is get you obviously to live more in the present. Okay. Oh, great. Well, so what, what does that mean? Well, there is a hugely practical benefit to that. And it's this, the best work, the best anything, the best living you will do. And I, this is true for anybody is going to be done in the present. So if you're worried about your future and you're worried about your bills and all that, if you focus on what you're doing, like right now, and it does take a somewhat of a leap of faith. Just focus on what you're doing right now. If you're an artist, focus on your art every day, every as much of moments as you can. Focus on exactly what you that's all Zen is. Zen is just doing what you're doing when you're doing it. That's mindfulness too. You will be a better artist. You will make more money. You will do everything better. It, it's it's just if you look at all the philosophies of, you know, whether it's Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, I don't care what it is. Most of them come back to that basic truth, be in the moment. And that is where some people call it God. Some people call it whatever. That's, that's where your destiny lies. Everything is found by being in the moment. Yeah. And, and I've kind of, I try to sift things down as much as I can for my own life. And I'm probably going to write an article about this at some point, but it really comes down to just doing two things. It comes down to doing your best to be in the moment. And then the second thing is, and then trust in life. And some people would say, trust in God, trust in the universe, trust in whatever. Cause a lot of people would be like, well, what if, if I'm not worried about my bills, then, you know, I'm going to go poor. So that's where the trusting in life comes in to play. But that's what I'm trying to do right now as best I can is just, you know, do what I'm doing. My old self of DC and West Wing and, you know, the professional side of me starting this new venture, my old 1.0 of me would have said, okay, we got to go, go, go. We got to have our, you know, 50 point to do list for today to get the website going. What am I doing? And I would have been all uptight and anxious. And, and now I really am just working really hard on getting myself to just take one thing at a time and give everything I can to that one thing and then do the next thing and then do the next thing. And as a result, I think I'm going to do better work. It's going to be more successful and I'm not going to be as anxious. So it's like a triple win. Yeah. I mean, that last comment I think is a powerful one, you know, anxiety. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the person who's str struggling, the, the woman, the, 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 the mom, the dad, the entrepreneur, whatever out there struggling to make ends meet nine out of 10 of them are, I'm guessing incredibly anxious and stressed out. And I think, you know, if I'm understanding what you're saying is that a survival technique in that context is to try to gain clarity around quieting your mind. Yes. And meditation helps to quiet your mind. 
so yeah. you can get clarity. And then that would reduce anxiety and stress. Absolutely. I have an article this that uh, it sort of deals with finding your true purpose in life, but it, it also deals with what we're talking about here, which is. I still don't know what my true purpose is, by the way. <laughs> well, I read might. that article and I was like, oh, shit, now I'm all stressed out. I got to start meditating. Yes. And then you <laughs> won't be stressed out. No, I mean, it, the great things, the great pieces of art, the great epiphanies of life when you really are sort of, you know, have some flash of, God, this is what I really want to be doing and this mm, and that. Mm. Most of this stuff is going to come to you much better. As I was just saying earlier about art, they're going to come to you in moments of silence and moments of stillness inside. They're not going to come to you while you're in bed at night fretting about how you're going to pay your health insurance premium for next month. They're going to come to you. And, and, and so all this is doing, this meditation thing is just slowly but surely helping you just have more of those stillness, still moments inside so that God, the universe, nature, whatever you want to call it, can sort of communicate with you mm. and through you. Because I'm, you know, my own sort of philosophy on this stuff is that I believe, you know, that the universe, I'll call it, wants to sort of express itself through all of us. That's what life is all about, is and it, and, it, and it can't express itself through us if we're chattering. You know, the only way it can sort of communicate what it wants through us is in those moments of of, of stillness and silence. Yeah, and I think we're also living in a time when we tend to, and maybe this is shifting, right? But it feels like we, at least over the last you know, few decades, maybe have been living in an era where we have perhaps valued or put a premium on rationality over intuition. And, you know, maybe the best uh, solution is to, is to have both. I mean, you use your head, of course, in education, information and knowledge and science and data and whatever, but then somehow you use your gut or your intuition as that rudder or as, as your map, I don't know, but what analogy you want to use. But I know one of the things I've struggled with when I look back on life, on my life, some of the biggest mistakes or the biggest problems or crises or what have you could have been mitigated or avoided altogether had I listened to my intuition rather than my head. And I was, my gut was trying to tell me, but I put a premium on what my, my head was saying and inevitably I, it was wrong. And, right. you know, I, I can say now I'm at a point in my life where, and I haven't done that a whole lot, but when I've done that, it's been a whopper. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, yeah. oh shit, that was a real fuck up. Right. And if I'd only listened to my gut. And so now I'm at a point in my life where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard to try to pay more attention to my gut. And all I'm saying is that it, your gut the voice of your gut, mm. which is your conscious self mm. really, mm. is going to be much louder and much easier to hear and be much stronger than your head, which is your thoughts and all that stuff. The quieter you get and the more you can do that through meditation. Mm. My shrink always tells me, I'll go in to see my shrink and my shrink will say, you're telling me what you think. Tell me what you feel. Right. 
because I'm because that it's so easy to say what you're thinking. Yeah. And because we live in our heads. Yeah. And I'm from the Midwest. I was grew, grow, grew up in a, you know, kind of a environment, a culture where it was, you know, stiff upper lip, wear your burdens with a smile, you know, don't let them see you sweat, you know. So basically it's this, you know, complete bifurcation of, you know, reality, right? It's like, okay, don't really tell me how you feel. Act like everything's okay. You know, when that's completely disingenuous and inauthentic way to live. And, you know, I have struggled. A big part of my work in therapy, for example, is trying to understand how I feel about something. Mm-hmm. Because I realize many times I'm in, I'm in my head about it, yeah. you know, and I'm not just, and it's been a very, one of my challenges with therapy is to actually have the language. I don't, I wasn't given the language to be able to communicate how I feel about something, you know, because actually I was never given permission to feel. It was like, no, kids are meant to be seen and not heard. Yeah. You know, do as I say, not as I do. That was my <laughs> full parenting philosophy of the 70s and the 80s and, you know, in the Midwest. So, you know, these, this, these, I mean, I know they, you know, my parents meant well and all that good stuff, but, you know, this has unintended consequences, right? In terms of how we grow up, how we see the world, how we live, how we move about the cabin, you know, and, and so I can see that so much of my anxiety and my stress is tied to not being connected to my inner voice, my intuition. And a big part of that is because my mind is so noisy. Yeah, it's strong, man. It is really strong. As I, you heard in my article, or read in my article about the conscious self, and I actually, just for fun, and that's part of my thing, I'm trying to bring some fun to this stuff and not be so sort of uppity serious like a lot by of the way the, can i just say thank yeah. you for that because like it, it annoys the shit out of me this pompous self-important elitist pretentious fucking uh, attitude that permeates most of the self-help section of the bookstore let alone you know the spiritual uh, section well the reason i'm doing that is first of all it's who i am i mean i've generally just been a humorous guy and light and fun since I was, you know, I can remember. So I'm not going to be phony about it, but I also am doing it for a practical reason, which is I think there are jillions of people out there that are turned off to meditation and a lot of the spiritual stuff because they think it's for a bunch of, you know, hippies and, you know, or just sort of people who live in Boulder and Berkeley who are sort of above it all. And I want it to go to Kansas. I want it to go to Indiana. I want this stuff. My attitude on this stuff is that the huge part of this country and frankly the world, but for now let's talk about America. The huge swath is missing out on this great stuff because they think it's weird and there would never be caught dead, you know, meditating. And I'm going to bring, I want to bring it to those people. I want to, and I'm going to do it by being fun. And frankly, you know, part of it, talking to them in ways that, that they will get like talking about God. Mm. You know, I have my own language for dealing with that, but man, you want to be a better Christian? Meditate because it will, quiet down what what is what better way to actually have a conversation with god than when in the silence 
that happens in your own head. It's not going to come from all this crazy well, but stuff isn't it, going on. Isn't it to some extent tomato, tomato? I mean, you know, pray. Isn't prayer uh, another word for meditate? Prayer is a form of meditation. I, I would say that certain kinds. I, if you're, you know, sort of saying going through a laundry list of this is what I want. You know, I want praying for a Mercedes for Christmas from my husband. Thanks. Please, Jesus, give that to me. I wouldn't call that prayer, but just sort of being silent and just trying to feel God come through you. And yeah, absolutely. Of course. How were you? Were you raised Catholic? I was raised Episcopalian. Ah, okay. So what I would call Catholic light. Catholic light. We were the first to break away okay good old, good old henry what was the, the issue why did why did episcopalian uh henry the eighth uh, in in 1538 uh, 3038 he believe. wanted a divorce what was yeah, the deal he wanted yeah, to that's right. divorce his wife because she couldn't i think it was because she couldn't bear him a son and so the pope was not thrilled about that and henry the eighth said bye-bye yeah and that was the start of the anglican church right. which is basically synonymous in our country with the Episcopal Church. Right, 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 right. So sort of the start of the reference. Well, actually, Martin Luther posted his things, and I think in 1519, his yeah. 95 theses on the cathedral at Wittenberg about why he couldn't stand the Pope and the Catholic Church. But so, but anyway. So bringing it back around, because I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of folks out there, you know, I'm guessing raised in some kind of religious practice of some sort, or maybe not, but we're living in a time, you know, we're, we're living in such a fascinating time. And I think that's like a ridiculous thing to say, because I think, you know, you know, every time in history has been fascinating for yeah, various sure. reasons, but we're living in a time where folks have lost faith in the institutions. Like usually we found faith and peace of mind and security in our church or in our education system or in our government or in our company that we work for, what have you. Right. And I think now we're at a time where a lot of folks have lost faith in the company they work for or lost faith in their church or lost faith, faith in their government, you know? And so I think what you, your book and your, you know, point of view here is, is timely because kind of what you're getting at is the answers are inside us. Yep. That is that you're right. They all say this. I mean, you know, Jesus saying the kingdom of God is within you. Buddhism is Hinduism, same thing with the Atman inside you and all. I mean, it, that's such good news, I tell people, because if it's all inside you, yeah, that's where your challenges are. But guess what? That means that you can get in there and do something about it. If you're looking at the world and all of your problems as being all external and, oh, my boss is doing this to me and my my job is doing this to me and my friends, I wish they would be more responsive to me and my parents, I wish this, that. If you're looking at all your problems as being, quote, out there, yeah, you're screwed because you can't control all that stuff. Right. What you can control is how you respond and deal with that inside. Yeah. So I always tell people, you know, just the other day, my sister is telling me about how she's dealing with some things with her work. And I'm, I'm just telling her, you know, your problem is not with what's going on in your job. Your problem is with how you're dealing with what's going on with your job. You just need to 
really be mindful about changing that focus. And mm. if you really do that and you really work hard at it, I mean, the, the sky is the limit for just how good you can feel in general, like on a daily basis. Well, you know, that reminds me of, you know, Emerson's essay on self-reliance, right? I mean, isn't the flip side of self-reliance uh, personal responsibility? Yeah. Right. And part of what we're getting at, right, is this idea that, no, you know what? I'm going to accept responsibility for my happiness. I'm not going to pass the buck anymore. Right. Sure. There are assholes in the world that are trying to put negative energy, you know, that, that are projecting negative, negative energy into the world. Right. But it's up to me to, to, to determine whether or not I take that negative energy in or I give that person the power over me. Right. To be happy or what have you. And so I accept responsibility for my happiness and that I'm going to look for those answers inside me, you know, answers for my happiness, for my peace of mind, for my quality of life. You know, and I think that what your, your book and everything you're talking about is so timely because I feel like maybe just maybe we're at a time where people are starting to become conscious of the power that they have. I do believe that that is happening. I, I've I've been a, I don't know. I just have a very sort of optimistic viewpoint of what I would call the trajectory of humankind. You know, never is, are things perfect. Of course not. You've still got ISIS blowing up churches and people shooting up this and that, and awful things going on. But you know, I look at sort of. In the 1950s, Jim Crow laws were still pretty hugely in force. And, you know, civil rights for African-Americans these days isn't perfect. But, boy, I think it's getting better. It's on a good trajectory. I feel the same about gay rights. You know, just all the things I think are on a decent trajectory. And, and most important, I think, is you would call, quote, the awakening of mankind. It's happening slowly. But I do think that it is moving in that direction such that, you know, I tell I, I get a little wacky with this stuff, but it's, it's not wacky. I mean, I look at like, what would the world look like if in 300 years, 500 years, let's say it's a thousand years, you know, most people are doing some form of meditation each day. It's just a normal thing that you do, like eating and the world population is just much more calm and less chattering in their minds. I mean, what would that world look like? You know, I, I write in the book, it's like, I've, and this, this is true. I have never been as a kid, as an, even as a, most of my adult life, I've never been sort of the pie in the sky, John Lennon, imagine all the people sharing all the world type. I just was never like that. I've always been a bit more pragmatic mm -hmm. and like, you know what? It's just human nature. People can be bad. They're just, there's a bad part of us and it's just there. And I, through going through these experiences in these last years, I have fundamentally changed my view on that because I don't believe that human nature is inherently has inherent sort of badness to it and violence that will never go away. I do believe that human nature really is frankly the product of this the evolutionary status of the human mind at any given time. 
And so uh, that as we keep doing more of this stuff and our brains change more and more, I could see a time where, you know, the world might be a hell of a lot better place. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I agree with you. Although I would say that I think so much of human behavior is driven by the environment, right? And that we're shaped by environment, literally, mm -hmm. right? And so we're living in a time now where our environment, in this environment that we find ourselves, and, and, and let me be more specific, you know, first world civilization, mm -hmm. right? We are becoming incredibly disconnected from the natural world, mm -hmm. right? We're becoming way more connected to our devices than we are to the natural world, right? And I think a lot of modern ills, whether it's stress and anxiety, whether it's obesity, whether it's, you know, obviously the issues we're having with uh, sustainability on the planet with natural resources, so on and so forth, is is largely driven by the fact that we are uh, driven by capitalism in a, in a high-tech world that is really forcing folks to be sedentary and plugged into a computer to do the work of the day, mm -hmm. right? hundred years ago, obesity wasn't an issue. A hundred years ago, sustainability wasn't an issue. Anxiety wasn't an issue because it was a very basic, much more of a simpler uh, environment to live in because we were, you know, we were probably farming or we were, you know, maybe doing more manual labor kinds of stuff. I've been enjoying, there's a show at Netflix right now called uh, The Last Kingdom. I've watched every episode. Oh my God. So I'm halfway through and I've just started season three. Okay. There's a chance I told you about this show, but keep maybe going. Maybe you did. Maybe you did. I, I don't recall that, but like I saw it and I was like, that looks interesting. I got to Oh my fucking God. It's amazing. <laughs> I tell you, I, I, I'm enjoying it so much, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like that show, which of course is, you know, fictionalized history, whatever. I mean, based in, you know, real, real facts in there, but real people, real characters. However, the point is, is that, you know, you, you watch that and you watch how human behavior was driven by the, the environment of the day, you know, the brutal you know, nature of, of, of life in that time. Yeah. And you can start to see how, you know, human behavior is driven by the context of the day. And today is very different than it was then and, and, and in many ways, you know, far better, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, trade-offs. I agree with you that the, the environment and you know we're being pulled away by our phones and our computers and everything. And that is another good thing about you know meditation is what it it really is about just being in the moment and not gee, did someone just email me something or did someone just you know, I wonder what's going on in the basketball game i just checked like 40 mm -hmm. seconds ago yeah it's just uh i know i sound like god this guy is crazy it's like he thinks the solution to everything is hey just meditate well what i would really say is the solution to everything is being living more present moment oriented it really is it's 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 the only place as eckhart tolle would say the only time place you have ever lived and ever will live your life is in the present moment sure it has always been that way and it'll always be that way so stop living in your head when you're not there 
Look, I am like you, I think very practical person. And the things that resonate about everything you're talking about is exactly that being present, but also decluttering the mind, quieting the mind, clarity mm-hmm. of thought, you know, clarity uh, of, of uh, you know, in your mind. And, yeah. and that's, I mean, it's such a powerful notion. And I mean, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a notion that comes to one later in life. I, I don't know. I don't know if in my 25 year old self and my 30 year old self would give a shit. I was, you know, maybe having too much fun and, and, and doing whatever it is I was doing. And, you know, when you're younger, you are more in the present as well. Cause it is, it is a, it, that's the joy of youth, right. And sort of the benefit of youth. But now as a 48 year old, you know, man with a, with two kids under six with, you know, a house and bills and responsibilities and, you know, well, just having kids alone, that mm-hmm. one thing alone is mm-hmm. stressing me the fuck out. Yeah. No, I trust me. <laughs> I mean, I've got it's three. Like, it's like, yeah, you got me beat by one. I mean, Jesus, yeah. I, I I need what you, you got because uh, you seem much more relaxed than I am. Well, it's because I'm in your house right now and not mine. <laughs> I don't know. It's all, it's just all good. Just uh, and let me just say real quick for any one of your listeners, if they want to do this, I've thought about it long and hard about how to make it, you know, as easy as possible. I'm not into making people work. I don't, oh, you better, you got to go through your paces. I want this. All I care about is that people do this and I don't, I'm making it as easy as possible. And so I wrote a quick ebook, which is free and go to my website, davidgerkin.net. It's free. Just download it and it's an easy read and I'll take you through the paces on sort of how to do this in as easy a way as possible. And that, and this is not how to meditate. It's that, but it, this really is how to develop a practice so that you're sort of doing it. You know, it'd be like, I'm not teaching you how to do aerobics or run. If this is the working out analogy, I'm teaching you how to do working out you know, running regularly so that it's not just a one-time thing. So, well, and you know, I think it's important and I'm speaking to myself and I'm saying this out of my own personal experience. It's like, it's not what you do today, but it's what you do over time that matters. Right. So Mm -hmm. when it comes to whether it's exercise or diet or meditation, Mm -hmm. right. It's okay. If you failed today, as long as over the course of the next few months and years, the trend is moving in the right direction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I could be working out and exercising and dieting and being living a healthy life over the course of years. And therefore, it's okay that, that I had an in and out double double today. Oh, my God. Well, look, Scott, I, I made this up myself just because I am this pragmatic guy. And I've seen all the books, read all the books about meditation and the podcasts and all the stuff on the internet. And it occurred to me, you know what? If you're going to get people to regularly meditate, don't say they have to do it every frigging day because they'll never do it. Right. Or they may do it for 30 straight days and then they'll explode and go, oh, I missed a day. So, oh, I might as well just blow it off. So I came up with this thing that is totally reasonable and workable where I... My program has people doing it five out of seven days a week. Yeah. Okay. You don't have to do it every single day or you'll, you'll just fail. Right. Do it five out of seven days. Keep track. So, okay, great. I missed Monday. 
I missed Friday. So that means I got to do it Saturday and Sunday. Great. But don't, I don't believe in this sort of like extreme thing on this. I'm I'm into long-term success versus short-term killing it. But this is such an important point you're making because I mean, don't you feel like we're living in an era of unrealistic expectations? Yeah. Right. I do. It's, it's moderation. You know, you don't have to go crazy on this stuff. You know, you look at the people who really, when I look at an Eckhart Tolle, I mean, his life is just unbelievably simple. He doesn't do a whole lot. He's not, you know, waking up and doing 600 push-ups and then meditating for four hours. He just sort of lives presently. And But here's a question. Does he have kids? He does not have kids. Okay, and by see. the way, that is a question. That <laughs> right. is a question. I've, if I, I've never met the man. so yeah. But if I ever did, that would be one of the questions I would ask is, so what about It's very easy to kids? be, yes. You know, it, it, is, it is different. And most of those sort of, quote, masters, you right. know, whether they're from India or wherever, right. have been sort of kidless. But, you know, you just... You're probably, if maybe the point is if you have kids, you're probably not going to be like a master someday, but that's okay. <laughs> well, the irony is that the people with the kids really need this shit. They do. Right. They do. And it's been great for me. And by the way, just so you know, I'm kind of talking the talk and walking the walk. I've got my 10 year old and my eight year old, my son, Hank, and my daughter, Phoebe are both meditating. How cool is that? About a seven days a week, right before school. And I'm only having them do like three minutes right now, but they're being great about it. And it's frankly, as the younger you are, I think sometimes the easier it is because you're right. Your mind is a little less Mm -hmm. frenetic at that age. It's a little easier to be present. Mm -hmm. And I have them do it like 10 minutes before they leave for school. And I think it's just making them much more relaxed and my daughter sometimes gets anxious about stuff and i think she's less anxious when she heads off to school and it's just been great are you raising your kid episcopalian no i am not you know traditionally religious i don't have a traditional religion and by the way the meditation thing i hope this has come off in this talk we've had i don't look at it as part of a religious thing. I'd look at it as completely secular. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I know it is central in those religions and I got no problem with that. That's just, that's not my Mm. thing. I have kind of my own sort of view of. Well, how do you, I mean, I know this is maybe a little off topic. I'm just curious. I mean, it's great that you've got the kids practicing meditation. I mean, it's, it's, it's great for the, your health, body, mind, and spirit. You know, but how are you approaching spirituality with the kids and 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 religion and in these issues of morality? And well, issues of morality, ethics, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, religion, spirituality, so on and so forth. Well, it ha- to be honest, it hasn't come up a whole lot so yeah. far at right. age 10 and 8. And then I've got a two-year-old who obviously is not into this stuff, but it just comes up more as just parental yeah. stuff of right and wrong and right. all kinds of stuff. I'm just trying to think. I will, though, now that you bring that up, I'm going to slowly, I mean, this doesn't really have to do with morality or anything at all, but my my daughter Phoebe, just yesterday I told her, look, you know, all this breathing we're doing with your meditation and just breathing in and out and you know, if you are ever at school and you're just 
for something, somebody says something, some something happens that it really upsets you and you start to feel really sort of anxious or bad. I said, just remember that this breathing, your breath is always there for you. It's always a place you can go to just hopefully close your eyes and just do like three or four or five nice deep breaths and it'll just get back, get you sort of great advice into whatever. So I, I'm trying to use it with that kind of thing. But as the morality thing goes, you know, I have a father and mother, but mostly my father who was not religious very much at all, who was, you know, exceedingly moral and in a good way, not in an overbearing way. He was like, you know, look, you marry your wife, you don't cheat. You know, it's pretty much, there's not a lot more to it than that. And so I'm trying to teach my kids about sort of just, look, you know what's right and wrong. Right. There's no need to sort of parse it. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I, I bring it up just because, you know, it's 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 obviously germane to, you know, my reality as well. You know, I mean, Channing and I, my wife and I were talking and have talked about this a lot. I mean, you know, morality, ethics, values are absolutely that you can absolutely teach them without religion. You yeah. don't need religion. You don't need, you know, to talk about within the context of God or what have you to teach morality or values or ethics. And, and, and Channing and I come from two very different backgrounds. I mean, she, she was Episcopalian in a much more kind of relaxed kind of situation. I grew up in a much more devout kind of conservative Christian situation. And we are not church going. We are not a church going family. We do not take the kids to church. I often say that, you know, I am a born again pagan, you know, want my kids to discover their own beliefs. I don't want to spoon feed them, you know, any answers. Cause by the way, I don't think, I mean, my answers are my answers. They're not answers for anyone else. And, but yet there are important things to be able to pass on like meditation to the kids. I mean, these are, these are, these are, this is a very important point you're making, I think. And I know it's helpful for me as well to think about it moving forward with the kids, but you know, I just, you know, I don't want to spoon feed them anything, but yet at the same time, you know, my daughter already assumes there's a God because of course her friends talk about God because, they're going to the synagogue or they're going to the church or they're going, you know, and it's just part of conventional living, you know, this idea that there is a God, you know, and I'm not going to disavow that. I'm not going to tell her, no, there isn't, or no, you, you know, I'm just going to let her walk her path. She did ask me uh, about God. And it's funny. She said, uh, is, is, is there a God dad? She just asked me, you know, not too long ago. And I said, well, some people believe there are, you know, and there, there is, you know, and uh, she said, uh, well, you know, is, is, is God, is, is God like a, a man or what, what, you know, is, and I said, well, some people believe God is a man. I said, I personally believe God is a woman. <laughs> That's great. When I said that. Her eyes lit up and she smiled so big. Oh my God. That's it made awesome. her so happy to think that God could be, and might be a woman. Mm-hmm. The joy on her face. It was like one of those special moments in life. I was like, I was so glad I said that. I mean, I was like, you know, making it up as I go, but you know. Well, I, another way that this meditation stuff comes back on even this has to do with bringing up my kids. And I think we all as kids 
draw from our experience of how we were raised. And a lot of it is, yeah, the good parts, but then there's also the, God, what will I not do that my parents did? Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of people that that influences their parenting more than anything. Right. Well, my parents were fantastic on the whole, as I said, integrity and just do the right thing and just, you know, very big on that and a really cool, good, positive way. Sounds very balanced, very practical. Where we were not sort of, uh, for me, I'm the youngest of six. My dad was a big, successful CEO of Pacific Life, and he basically created the company called PIMCO. And I mean, he was a really big deal, very into success. And so I got a lot of, you know, sort of focus and emphasis on being successful, which, you know, and he would couch it as, look, you know, if you, that doesn't mean you can't be a teacher. If you want to be a teacher, great, be a teacher. How did but, he define success? Was it a monetary? No, 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 no yeah, not at yeah. all. My dad was, that was another great thing about him. And it goes to values as he was, he, he was a big, you know, he could have been a squillionaire, but he just didn't really care that much about money. Mm-hmm. He was more into, frankly, influence and power and stuff like that. But, but he was, it, it, it was just much more about be the best you can be. Be if you're going to be a teacher, be the best teacher you can right. be. And even great that, advice. though, no, you say it's great advice. It's all. It's not that it's bad advice, but I don't think that that. It's all about what you put at the top of the pyramid. You can be successful. I put that down a little bit lower. It's not that you shouldn't be successful, and it's not that you shouldn't be the best at what you can be. But even there, you're telling someone what they what their emphasis should be on. And what my thing is that I learned that I want to give to my kids is to focus number one on listening to themselves. That's the number one thing. I That's what I'm going to harp on them about. What do you want? And I'm going to really get them to start asking that question repeatedly because it doesn't come right. the first time usually. No, but yeah. I was never asked, well, Dave, what do you really want to do? I don't right. care about your success. I mean, what 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 are you like? What's big to you? And that's something that develops over time, I sure. think. But you need to get that muscle. And this gets back moving. to the intuition. And it gets back to in meditation in the yeah. sense that when are you going to hear best that voice telling you who you are and what you want to do in life and how you want to be better than when your mind is quiet? That's when it comes through. That's when it comes and communicates with you is when things are quiet. And, you know, so that's another sort of hopeful byproduct I'll get from my kids doing this stuff from an early age is I just want them to be sort of the captains of their own ship in yeah. a sense. And I want them and it takes guts and it takes courage to often listen to yourself because you know i'll give you a for instance and i'm at princeton and i'm a senior you know every damn kid there is out interviewing at morgan stanley and chase manhattan bank for their big fat wall street job that they were going to get when they graduated and that's just sort of a you know everyone's doing it it's 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 just the next thing in the line of well i went to princeton and the next thing i need to do is get a big job there or i go to harvard law school or whatever it was very conventional yeah uh, but they're not asking themselves what do i really want in life yeah one guy who did just as a fun little story who i don't think did that in my class at princeton who 
was someone who I think did beat his own path was a guy by the name of Jeff Bezos, who happens to be the richest person Never in the heard world right now. And it's because he had some creativity. And some Jeffrey was in your class. What's Jeffrey? That? Jeffrey was in your class. Jeffrey Bezos. <laughs> you said Jeffrey, Jeff yeah. Bezos, Jeffrey. Yeah. He was in your class. You said, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew him a little bit. Yeah. Nice guy. And, but the, the people that really quote, make it really, really make it mm. are those that are, following a passion <laughs> well they're on a spectrum but they're also following something inside you know bill gates dropped out of harvard and look guts does that take it's right. like screw it i really am into this thing i right. want to do this business right. it's awesome right. it's cool right. Jeff, uh you know steve jobs you know he's a crazy guy but man he he I don't think he cared about being cool or being oh i'm gonna mm. do this no he was just following his passion mm. So that's what I want for my kids. Right. That's and it that's probably will mean I will not want them to go to like a Princeton or even if they could, it's do what you, you know, don't just do what you think is going to be cool. And everyone's going to look at you and go, wow, you're neat. And I want them to get that sort of strength inside to do what they really want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that takes courage. You know, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on kids these days, right? To live up to a certain standard. You know, I think a lot of parents are living vicariously through their kids. They, you know, are, you know, trying to get their kids to, to, I don't want to say like, it's like, it's like, oh, my kid's going to make up for my mistakes. You know, (laughs) like, like I'm going to, you know, and that's fucked up. I mean, you know, I, my goal with my kids is to try to create the space for them whereby they can develop into the person that they're meant to be and in such a way that they're able to be comfortable in their own skin walking into any room in on this planet yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. like that's it you know and i i have to say you know it's funny you've been on my ass about meditating as a good friend would be the last many, 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 many months. But it's the story that you're telling me right now about teaching that tool to your kids. That's really resonating with me in a special way because a parent, that's what a parent's job is, right? To give them tools to manage themselves, manage life, manage the world, what have you, and what a powerful tool this is. And I want to apply that to my own child's life. And that, yeah. you know, so again, just like with anything, right? I mean, exercise or whatever, like, yeah. This is all. This is all good. I have a, a question for you, yes. and you, you know, you be be honest. Yeah. Have you read the whole of the Bhagavad Gita? Oh yeah, the whole book. Well, it's not that long. Oh, are you? I thought uh, it was, the one I had was like this fucking thick. <laughs> you might be thinking. I think the Bhagavad Gita is part of a longer thing called. It starts with an M. I can't remember what it's called. The Macabarat, maybe something like that, but. The Bhagavad Gita is actually only a couple hundred pages. Okay, well then maybe. Well, then I need to get your you you have the Cliff Notes version apparently because no, no, no. <laughs> no the Bhagavad Gita is part of a longer. It's eighteen books, right? I think it's eighteen books, and each book is only, you know, anywhere a, sh- a, a, a four to eight or nine, ten pages long. Okay, well I'll have to get that edition because I mean the one I have or had was very thick. And I remember I read sections of it, you know, but that was about the, well, that book and the Eckhart Tolle book is the, I think are the only two books on your list 
that I have not read. So, you know, on your website, davidgerkin.net. Yeah, he's talking about an article I wrote about five spiritual classics you've got to read. That you have to read. And I thought that was a great list, by the way. I mean, yeah. yeah. How, How did you choose those five? Okay. They had to have a couple things. One is they had to be short ish because I'm again, I'm practical. I'm not going to go, hey, you got to go read the Old Testament. It's full of wisdom. It's like thousand pages long, whatever. So they had to be short and also easy to read. Yeah. You know, the only one on that list of five that's not easy to read, the language is a little bit hard, would be Emerson's essay on self-reliance because it is written in sort of 1840s English. But, you know, it's it's, it's doable. Yeah. But And it's only 35 pages long. Right, right. So I didn't feel bad about that. But the other thing was that all five of them just, for me, just are unbelievably powerful in in their own way, right? And helpful, right. Right. most important to people. I was surprised not to see the uh, prophet on there by oh. Khalil Gibran. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, God. I haven't read that in a while. I know there's some good wisdom in there. That's for your next article. The next the the next five uh, five books uh, yeah. for your, your <laughs> books books six through ten. Books six through ten. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. David Gherkin, my friend, this has been uh, fun, but more than fun. I mean, it's it's been empowering and very gratifying, uplifting chat with you today, my friend. Well, it's always good to be with you. You're uh, one of the great souls. On this planet, soul. I don't have a soul. What are you talking about? I sold. I sold my soul a long time ago. Wow, you uh, you you do a good job faking it because you've got a very strong, awesome soul, and you know I'm crazy about. I love you. to dance. I love to dance to soul music. So maybe that's uh, <laughs> okay, part of it. There we go. No, but listen. So before we wrap up, I want to make sure that our listeners are you know 100 clear on call to action. You know, we've mentioned your website, davidgerkin.net now a few times. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like there is a free ebook mm-hmm. available to them that will be incredibly helpful in terms of breaking down so much of what we talked about today and practical steps that they can apply to their lives starting, you know, today, tomorrow, the no, next it's, day. It's called five steps yeah. to a regular meditation practice. And it's just the five things it's, you know, I think the book is about 40 pages long, mm-hmm. roughly. Mm-hmm take you certainly less than an hour to read it because it's written very you know breezy easy language and you know i just this is my third act in life first act was dc and politics the second act was la and writing and my third act is spreading meditation as far and wide as i possibly can because i just it's just so profoundly valuable and it's just not that hard. And it's, that's what just hits me. I'm like, my God, what's going on? Let's just give this stuff a try. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, well, the world is a better place with you in it, my friend. This book is important. When does your book come out? Book will be out. It's finished, but I'm not going out with it. I'm not exactly sure, but probably in, I'm going to guess, the fourth quarter of this year. Okay. All right. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. And when the book comes out, will you come back and talk some more? You bet. You bet. All right. Well, thanks for inspiring us today, Mr. Gherkin. You got it. Great to be here. Be well. Cheers. 